Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the AgVendic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. After such a positive response to our latest series featuring founders from later stage ag tech startups, we thought we'd drill deeper into some of the insights from the entrepreneurs we spoke to. And to help us, I'm joined by Matthew Pryor, who you probably know, he's my business partner. But before that, he co-founded Observant, a precision ag water management company, which was later acquired by Jane Irrigation. And we've also brought in Anastasia Volkova. They invest in you, not because you're so grand and glorious, but because you show that you're coachable, that you have the passion, that you're driven, and you'll figure this shit out. And that last bit is really important because you take the responsibility for it. That's Anastasia. She's the co-founder and CEO of Regrow, an independent measurement, reporting, and verification platform for carbon and ecosystem services. Matthew and I have known Anastasia for something like five years now, from back when she just founded Fluorisat, which eventually became Regrow. After acquiring U.S. ag tech company Dagan and a recent $17 million Series A, Regrow now has more than 60 employees, a global reach, and has just celebrated their fifth birthday. So while they're not yet a later stage ag tech startup, we wanted to ask Anastasia for her reflections on the insights from our previous founder guests and to hear some of her own experiences, especially around M&A activities. And just a quick disclaimer, our VC firm, Tenacious Ventures, has invested in Regrow, and this is, of course, not investment advice. Also, if you haven't listened to the previous guests in the series, Michael Gilbert of Semios, Paul Lightfoot of Bright Farms, and Charles Barron of Farmers Business Network, I really recommend you go do that first. This episode will still make sense if you haven't heard them, but you'll get a lot more out of it if you go back. So let me introduce you to Anastasia, who also has a PhD in aerospace engineering. We start the conversation asking, to be successful as an ag tech founder, do you have to come from an agricultural background? Yeah, what, what ag background? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Was I supposed to have one? <laughs> I guess I grew up in Ukraine and that means that you really know where your food comes from. So through that, I would say I've seen agriculture and it frightened me a lot less than other industries where I could go and apply my desire to make an impact in the world with software technology. I think the background is as they say, like for anything like hiring VP of sales or picking your journey in your career, like People who have the right skills to perform certain set of actions at a certain stage of the process, for example, startup founders from zero to 25 million in revenue could probably do well in a variety of different industries. And in just in some industries where they have more background, they will have more certainty and their gut feel would work better. But just like you wouldn't hire a VP of sales just because like, they've done agriculture before, let's hire someone who's done agriculture. Like I just need a great VP of sales and it doesn't necessarily need to be agriculture. So I think for entrepreneurs, that's partly true. Like you actually need to have the chops of what it takes to figure out the problem and the solution to the problem at the same time and, and build a business doing it. And I think those skills, they do not come from domain expertise. They can say you will know the problem a lot better, but You've spoken on the podcast to such a great number of people who did not come with that agricultural background. And I think that's the testimony for, like, we're just so passionate, blood sensitive as a foodies 
and we want to fix big problems. I, I think that's right. It goes to what some of the guests in this series said as well, that there's some kind of passion for it. And, uh, you know, yeah. it can be ag, it can be something else. But if you're working, especially in an industry like this, that's complex and challenging and you've got deep technologies and distributed users and, you know, challenging supply chains, you have to really give a shit about it. Otherwise, I think you'd go pick a different, easier industry. Super interesting in listening to NSH is just then, I think there's two things, right? There's one is like you can learn and you have to be able to walk into a room and talk credibly and know that the products and services are appropriate, right? So that's, I don't know, it's domain expertise, but more than that, it's the passion, right? I mean, the way Michael spoke about it, the way Charles spoke about it, you talk to people, oh, I'm a dentist, like, because I make money, you know, right? the degree to which you might love having your hands in someone's mouth versus, you know, enjoy the fact that, the, you know, you can have a nice car, but it's just so different with Hag. I think, you know, just that perspective of wanting to be about and be for farmers. And I think it's something I just haven't experienced it outside of agriculture. You could hear that for sure in Charles talking about getting into agriculture and, you know, he found it through love as opposed to technology, but it's clearly a passion for him. I got into agriculture, you know, I joke the, the very old fashioned way, which is that I married into it. I was from uh, an urban area, from uh, the Bay Area. My wife is from central Nebraska, from Kearney, Nebraska. I met my future brother-in-law who farms out there in Arapahoe, Nebraska, right when we were getting out of college. And that was actually my first time on a real production, you know, commodity farm. So when at that time, I just became completely fascinated by farming, really knew nothing about it before then, hadn't appreciated the life of a farm or the complexity of farming. In fact, it had, it really never, never registered for me. I kind of, you know, being from a big city and, and then uh, going to school on the East Coast, just hadn't thought much about it. But when I spent time with Anthony, it, it just blew me away. It blew me away. It blew me away how complex the job was, how much responsibility a one person has on a farm. Anastasia, what were some of your early experiences in agriculture? And did you have any similar realizations around developing that passion for the industry? I don't consider... Um, myself, someone who really comes from a very, very, very developed society in which you don't know the real taste of tomatoes. Like I do know the real taste of tomatoes and how they're supposed to smell and how to grow them. And I think through the experiences with farmers being transposed from like family hobby farm, gardening, a little bit of that into, oh, this is production farming, there's the whole industry, there's a lot of people and there's division of labor and these people do this and these people are called agronomists and crop advisors and this is what they do and this is what the farmers don't do, this is how what they get provided to them. I think that got a little bit of getting up to speed to figure out, so in the system, how would the business model work? Like who are we delivering the value? Who can pay, you know, who's the user, who's the buyer? Like getting kind of all the pieces in place. But kind of before all of that, of course you had to be someone who would be accepted by this group of people. And I think what is charming to me about agriculture, although in retrospect, you know, there were things that were told to me like, oh yeah, when you first showed up in the Thai t-shirt, I, I know you know who said that, but it's like, it's just so funny that I didn't know that at the time how I was perceived, but I was quote unquote tolerated because I was so passionate about solving their problem and I really wanted to do it. And later on it's like oh yeah we just decided to to listen to because we were so persistent and then it turned out that it was kind of 
working. It totally resonates with me, the um, idea that people tolerate you because of your passion, even if they don't really understand why you're there or like what context you have for, for talking to them. I've been in many a regional town talking about some kind of ag technology or fundraising in Silicon Valley coming into, you know, climate oriented adaptive agriculture, whatever it is. And they're like, yeah, we just didn't really know why you were there, but you seemed like you were really passionate about it and you were asking good questions. So we just kind of went with it, but there you go. <laughs> but that's exciting, right? Is, is different people coming into the industry. One of the things that struck me in how, especially I think Charles and Michael to some degree were talking about their experience coming into being a startup was navigating this line between, you know, trying to change the industry and being from the outside, but also wanting to respect and appreciate like why it is the way it is. Matthew, did you have a, a similar kind of experience of feeling like you were coming into ag from the outside? I know you had family, you know, spent time on the farm as a kid. What I was was thinking about is bringing other people into the business, right? Because as a founder, you get a certain amount done and Charles uh, and Michael both talk about this too. But as you're bringing people into the business, you have to make these decisions about who are we, what do we stand for? We knew that if we ever got someone to spend time on a farm, that they would almost never leave, right? Whether you have it in your background or not, like is a, is a life circumstance. But I think it's it's so kind of visceral to see what the day in the life of someone who is entirely dependent on agricultural production looks like. And I think that's kind of hook that's, again, pretty unique, right? We would make a point of chucking people in a bus and, you know, dropping them all off at the nearest bit of, you know, proper production agriculture we could get to because it just, yeah, it, it would always deliver in impact and passion and understanding. I love that. And it goes to one of the very key themes that came up in all three of the conversations in this series around hiring and just how important it is to be bringing people on that journey with you and how challenging it can be to be bringing them on the journey, but also having to let them go. One of the aspects of that that, that came up was kind of company values. Are company values something that you guys have at Regrow Anastasia and how did those come about? First, we do. And I remember the day we wrote them and I remember how everything looked, where we sat and and, and how that entire process felt. So I think culture and values is something that is really hard to understand for a startup founder to a point up until when the company is really scaling. And I would say in the recent probably year, I have felt it more than I've felt it before in the previous four years of the company. First, because we've acquired and merged with another company to create uh, what is now Regrow. And it meant that there was different cultural expectation on the people who were previously in the company that joined us. And that meant that that expectation had to be aligned. And they're, they're wonderful people. We feel like, oh, you know, you're, they're also diligent and kind. Well, what can be different? Like, what, why wouldn't it be hard for us to work together? Well, everyone has different expectations of what work together is, how fast that happens, and what comes out of it. And... <laughs> Um, I can say that we have very happily joined forces and with very minor losses have navigated this merger. At the same time, this made me very acutely aware of what culture is, how it needs to be defined. And especially now I am uh, spending some of my time co-defining those values into review processes, promotion processes, hiring processes, so that decisions can be made without me 
and without the leadership team, and they can be made to the same standard so that people would still be looking around and saying, I really love the person I've worked with. And one of the biggest testaments to that was that the recent employee feedback survey of Regrow's team has shown 100% satisfaction with the team. Yeah, they would prefer more work-life balance. I'm not going to hide that for sure, because we're on a rocket that is moving so fast. This is what I think leads to that 100% satisfaction score. And it, it's quite different from what other companies would like um, to codify in their values. Like the things we care about are really uniquely us, I feel like. And it's hard to really codify them for a first-time startup founder. So I don't want anyone listening to this have really a misconception that like, oh, you should be born with this. Like, no, when you see it not working, this is when you know what you wanted. Because then you're like, oh, this is where it failed. Let's put the guardrail here. Yes. And you have to spend so much time wordsmithing, right? Like, oh, is it, does this word go before that word? And is this one too long? And like all those details really do matter because it becomes part of this, you know, company culture and, and code for, for how you're building a business. I think Paul actually said that best when he talked a little bit about his leadership philosophies. I, I knew what my leadership philosophies were. I knew the sort of management culture and style the company was going to have. Before I even hired a single employee, I'd written out the core values and beliefs that weren't even edited until nine years later. And they're still 90% intact from the very beginning. Because I just recognized how important it is to do that from the get-go. I'm one of these people that doesn't like the consultancy stuff, right? Like I'm, I'm super biased against those things. But, but it's bullshit to think that starting with core values and beliefs is like consultant speak. It gives you a filter through which to consider people and opportunities. That part of the interview was so good, right? Because he, you just had a sense of someone kind of looking back who had this really great balance between operating experience and life experience. And the, the certainty with which he talks about values there is just so clear. And Anastasia, you were just saying like, okay, you're going to make bad hires. You're going to kind of sit there in an interview saying, oh, gee, I'm just not sure, but gee, we really need someone, you know? And so you kind of say yes, and then you realize you should have said no, but I don't know that there's a substitute for that. I think a certain amount of it, you just have to acquire, uh, you've got to lose a bit of skin yourself to, to be able to see patterns that clearly, I think. You can only connect the dots looking backwards, like in Steve Jobs' Stanford address. Like you just, you just need to leave with it. Like what Paul said, I couldn't have done that. I had smaller, different businesses that weren't venture-based startup before, and I had teams, and I didn't know what it would be to go from like a team in an office in one city to a team everywhere across the world with different backgrounds, and what would I even want to be the culture for this business at this stage of the market with these challenges? Like it's just so contextualized, like, and and yeah. you can only acquire that experience or get it from your advisors. It's not something you can just learn from one hiring mistake. That's interesting, actually, Anastasia, like that that idea of the merger was kind of mid-COVID, right? Exactly, yeah. That seems like the sense of culture and sense of destiny would have been even more important there. Yeah, the traditional kind of M&As, you go visit the team and you kind of spend time with them and work out, you know, like what what's going to stay, what may not make the jump. But yeah, how, how do you think that was different in that kind of fully remote world? Because you've done it, well, yeah, at least twice, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I've done it a couple of times. And 
every time the decision was made, I was actually not anywhere near that team with regards to which decision was made. So I partly associate our success with, with the fact that we have strong commitment to remote first, and this makes us a good asynchronous organization. And we also have a very diverse team. We speak more than 10 languages. We're just also different. Like we had to figure out how to operate with each other and why that was such a critical part of being part of regrow that you need to have that, that tolerance, that willingness, the understanding, the people who's not native languages, English, they speak differently. They may voice their opinions differently. They may interact with you differently. And sometimes it gets them to success. Sometimes it gets them to be very frustrating to certain cultures. But in ag, and especially in climate in impact of ag, we're just all so mission-driven that you can find that connection on the topic of trust that we want to collaborate and find the ways to work with each other to achieve that impact. The only thing I would say was quite jarring is they were a localized team. We were diverse and global team. And that was something they had to really understand how to work without seeing each other. And COVID helped with that, but they were not necessarily set up for, you know, scaling operations of the company in the distributed remote fashion. Culturally, I would say I still have spent time on Zoom, on calls. We spent time talking. And I also spent time listening. I think that's the most important thing I've done uh, in this, this merger. You both know me quite well. I'm not hiding. I think, if anything, I don't want to be, like, I want to show bravery in accepting things that are hard and figuring them out for my people. And cultural change and transition was going to be hard. And I was there to take questions head on, you know, weekly calls with the team. There's uncertainty. There's all sorts of craziness. There is contracts and legal stuff coming their way. And they don't know who this company that is buying them is, what the vision is, what the strategy is. I think it's just so important to, to show up. And if that's part of the culture, if that's part of who you are, transparency, for us it is. And I want to model every little bit of that cultural value script we have. You, there's a bunch of things I want to pull on there. One of the things that you mentioned is diversity and like the difference, the, the way you might be or look from, from other people across the Zoom call or across the table. One of the ways that has played out, at least in this series, is that we've interviewed three male founders and many of the later stage founders in the ag tech space are male. It's not for lack of trying to, to find um, later stage female founders, and there are a few out there, not, not as many. But I'm just curious your experience or any comments on being a female CEO in this space and, and what that element of diversity has been like for you. I think when I was you know, reflecting on similar questions, because they get asked quite regularly, I would first thing that come to mind, like, I really hope our children don't hear this. That's the first thing. Let's get out of the way <laughs> with that sentiment. So I think in terms of being a female founder, I know female founders whose startups are arguably more mature in certain aspects, but they may be in markets that they're not as well supported or well capitalized because the market themselves financially are not well developed. Let's look at Australian VC. Come on, there is no late stage capital. Okay, so how could we have grown the female founded agri-tech startups that are absolutely stellar with their product in a better way without having them go to the U.S. to raise capital or go somewhere else. And you see that pattern time and time again. I also think that it has to do with 
who treads the path. The fact that the more people like me that are going down the path and, and, and sharing the experience, the more people will find it adequate and normal to go down that path. At the same time, let's just you know consider this third thing of bias that is known that often female founders get funded a lot less frequently than the male-founded startups, although they are financially a lot more viable and sound and performing better long-term. And when you see that pattern, multiply that by the fact that the industry is new. So the risk perception is heightened. So not only you don't have female founders going into that new scene, into the new industry, because someone needs to create it and inherently maybe they'll be uncertain about it. You don't see them there. Maybe if they even tried, because there weren't enough VCs who were investing. And I do think that I ended up luckily in a place where I had more white, older male people around me telling me that they are very aware of it and they want to see more people like me around them and they're deliberately supporting that diversity. And I think that was key to me, like to hear that that's something that is our joint goal. One of the other things you mentioned in the journey of the various acquisitions you've made is that kind of unique role that as the founder you play, where it can be kind of a lonely journey. You're having to bring everyone on the path with you. You're having to shield some of it from them. You're having to be this combination of confident, but vulnerable kind of out in front. Would you describe it as lonely at times? He just gave a very accurate description of what it feels like. I would also say that normalizing that your strengths plus vulnerability plus this huge load of decision-making doesn't have to be your own personal burden. Ultimately, you represent this connectivity between the board and all the stakeholders of the company, the team and the customers in the market. And so if you can leverage those forces in a way that people feel like they need to be leaning in in taking some of that responsibility. For example, I don't want the, necessarily the board today to make decisions for me, but I expect them to show up with the relevant experience, advice, or connections to help me inform my decision. If I'm being clear that I do not have enough experience in making this decision, this is clearly a stage question. I'm going to need this many people to learn from how they dealt at this stage with a particular problem. And that's what helped me find those people. That makes so much sense to me that it's it's the people that you surround yourself with. Matthew, you've jumped from the founder side of the table to the investor side of the table. What observations have you made about the kind of journey of founders now having observed many of them from the investor perspective? Yeah, I'm not sure it makes me a better investor. Maybe too much empathy. No, look, and actually just in, in listening to Anastasia talk, I think the the really exciting part is having kind of gone a bit down that journey. You have a sense for the things that really matter. So in Anastasia's case, there aren't many CEOs who have successfully integrated so many businesses into a company at Regrow's stage. And, you know, things like that aren't often talked about. But, you know, myself, having been on both sides of acquisitions you know, getting that right is so important. And, and if you haven't lived through it and know how important it is, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to know how, how well someone is going to do at that. Did I know that that was definitely true of Anastasia, you know, when the first one was sort of on the table? Not, not at all. 
But I think that, you know, when we're talking about kind of later stage uh, businesses, especially, it, it does move past. And, and, and maybe I would kind of draw that back to the, to the Paul Whitefoot thing too as well. But at some point, it does become super relevant that that, that kind of experience, that, that execution do really factor into successful growth like you know when we talk about being a high conviction high support investor like that line that's a bit harder right to find the right balance how much should you lean in it's a little bit like if you have children and you kind of you want them to fall over enough times to kind of know like you got to lose a bit of skin but by the same token there's certain stuff that is just super hard you know so the other side of that would be there are occasions where founders are going through really tough times and i think i find that really helpful to just gut feel what they're going through and i don't know there's no substitute for that right i think part of it that came up in the episode or in the series has been around humility and it's something anastasia yeah. said as well like asking for help and surrounding yourself with those people who can give you that advice but also knowing when it is time to ask for that um that's yeah. something that michael raised in the series as well and so we tended to hire people who were like more you know curious and want to understand but knew something about their space and and i found that worked well in our culture and so it kept with that humility and it was we were able to sustain it and i think people who who we did who we did hire that didn't quite fit in they soon left right and it has been definitely a learning process because you don't certainly as a chemist you don't learn anything about people management i've been to school for a long long time i know how to bring atoms together but people together is not my skill set and so I definitely have read more books about entrepreneurship and management than I ever thought I would. Anastasia, you have quite a technical background on the um, science and engineering side of things and then have had to move into this world of people management and leadership. What's that transition been like for you? It looks like some books helping you out all, all along the way as well. Yeah, I'm constantly reading, constantly trying to learn, not on my own mistakes. Like if anything I can do better for the company, learn Forrester and not on our own mistakes. Yeah, and I really enjoy the fact that these days, people who've been successful and have gone down these journeys before us have actually written about this stuff. So there's definitely a huge amount of learning, especially at this scaling phase, because you feel like, okay, there should be a lot of playbooks of like, people have done this time and time again. Like, how do you go from five to 10 to 15 to 20? It's like, okay, well, give me that playbook. And I keep reading and reading. And it's not necessarily a one playbook. It's like pieces of advice everywhere, but then you tie them together. It's like, okay, I don't want to overwhelm my team because we're not going to just implement everything that's by the book, but there are things that are the right time, the right place for us right now to put those structures and processes in place so that we can scale. That's something that really struck me in listening to yourself here today and these later stage founders in this series as well, this balance of confidence and, you know, projecting that you know, view of the future and leadership with this humility and asking for help and knowing that you need to read books and maybe have a coach and have a therapist and, and it's this constant balance. And yet the narrative in venture is so founder centric often. And this idea of, you know, it's the founder and they're up on the pedestal and they're the ones on the cover of the magazines, which is something that Charles talked about in the episode. You know, I think so much of the Silicon Valley narrative when people raise money or when people start companies is just founder obsessed. And for us, that's kind of just not who we are and it's kind of not our personalities and we didn't really see the benefit in it. You know, it's vastly more important to make sure that folks understand the problem of our customers 
and the problem of farmers out there. In, in Silicon Valley or in the business press, you see very little about agriculture. I mean, there's really only a couple reporters. And so they don't report on largely what's going on in rural America or rural Canada when you get outside of the ag trade publications. And so the idea that you know those kind of publications where the business press or the tech press wants to come in and wants to talk about VCs and founders, you know, is also kind of insulting because you know there's a population out there who you know are our constituents or our customers, and they have very real lives and very real problems and are largely ignored. And it's one of the reasons why you've got these big urban-rural divides in in America, socially and culturally. One of the tactics in today's world is to be out there speaking at conferences and building the brand of the company and the founder. And that's part of how you raise money and part of how you're successful. And yet, you know, you do want to not have too much ego come into play and actually be representing your customers uh, and users that you're trying to serve. How do you strike that balance? It is really an important question, but it also struck me in like previous episodes with Charles and with Paul that it was a lot more words ego that I had going through my head in the last four years. So it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what it comes down to is that I feel like we stand for a mission. And I stand for injustice to the planet, the farmers, the soil, and how the future generations, our children, will actually be able to find the food for themselves. And to me, that problem is so important to speak about that if anyone wants to throw rotten tomatoes or broken eggs at me, it's like, okay, yes, I'm going to show up there and if I will have something to say, and I will have a suggestion on the solution that I believe is worth investing time and attention and effort into. And those are the types of things that I consider about any public appearances that we do as a team this is really important advice right that they invest in you not because you're so grand and glorious but because you show that you're coachable that you have the passion that you're driven and you'll figure this shit out and that last bit is really important because you take the responsibility for it and what that really means sometimes the the, the vcs say it this way like we fund you because we maybe of the third startup that you will start. I can say that Regrow had three incarnations already. There was a first hypothesis with Florisat, there was a second hypothesis with Florisat, and now with Regrow, I feel like we've gone through those three incarnations and we're now at a place where it's scaling, it's good product market fit, it feels like we're onto something, but that tenacity of navigating the journey of finding something that really has a pull rather than the push dynamic in the business where everything seems to have a very hard push dynamic onto the farmer is, is really important. And that type of quality is why investors say that they invest in you because ultimately you take that responsibility because they're not going to run after you 70 people across 10 countries trying to ask them who made that decision. You're responsible for decisions. So I think it's really important to just divide those things. And to me, I wouldn't be you know beating my chest as much as like FBN does. Oh, it's about the farmers. I think it's about, to us, it's about ecosystem, environment, and people, and equity in that order, we say often, because we want to compensate for the balance of something that was imbalanced. I think that's a fascinating point, right? Because I think what you want is unreasonable self-belief. You have to have someone who unreasonably believes in a version of the future that doesn't exist today. And I think sometimes it is tempting to confuse that with ego. But I actually think, you know, listening to Charles's comment, 
I think that's more about what's appropriate for the brand positioning of the company to get their job done. One of the things that we heard in the series is that the person who has that unreasonable passion and belief might not always be the person to lead the company. We heard Paul's example of kind of that recognition of when it was time to, to step down and let the new guy take over. I'm actually not a guy who struggles with his ego, mostly, right? But I'm still, I'm still a person, right? So it's hard. I just remember like we'd have Tuesday leadership meetings and I just remember thinking, this guy's doing things differently than I would do. And I, by the way, I wasn't rationally thinking he was doing it worse. It's just different, right? And, I, and it would make me upset. And, and I, so I'd sit there trying not to talk, thinking, why does this make me upset, right? And I remember just you know, struggling a little bit with how I could be in the room while this was happening when, when it wasn't making me feel good. And in the first six months, I was like, maybe I'm not going to do this. Maybe I'm going to fly away. Like, you know, this is hard. And which is natural, it is hard. And, and I was thinking through like scenarios and I was like, well, this would be a good one, medium one, this would be the worst case scenario. And one of my four mates said that, no, no, the worst case scenario is if that guy fails. He goes, if that guy fails, he's screwed of course, but you're really screwed because you're the guy who kicked off this process, right? Like your investors aren't gonna work hard to, to you know, have you find the next one, right? I love that view of like, <laughs> it's, it's worse if that person fails. I, I, I had this exact experience, got to that point. And, and ultimately it was as we were expanding to the US and it just became clear to me that, that we needed a different skill set. But yeah, I don't know how you come to that realization, but absolutely that sense of just then being able to become an observer. And actually, if you listen to the way, you know, Michael and, and Charles and Paul all kind of describe, there is a bit of a sense of, them kind of hovering above and being able to observe. And I think that's a super important skill too, that, that ability to even be in the discomfort of knowing that that's not the way you would do it, but being happy that it's happening anyway. Anastasia, what did you think of when listening to this quote? I know there's this sense that like founders have that VCs are going to get on their board and then like replace the CEOs. Obviously that is not what we're talking about here, not what we're advocating for. This is a really different level of, you know, self-awareness and, and a really impressive story that Paul told, but I'm curious how as a founder, this story struck you. I started talking about it and thinking about it before we even raised series A. I said, okay, let's do a, a health check. I have my even personal friends tell me that I have a heightened sense of self-awareness and other awareness, and I have a high bar that wouldn't surprise anyone who knows me. So with that, I'm constantly trying to bridge the gap between where I am at, where the company is at, and where the real bar for me is at, at this stage for us to be operating. I will go myself to that board meeting and say, in six to nine months, if I haven't done these things, you probably should consider having me in a different position because if I get a company to that stage, from then on, it's market domination pathway for us and someone has to nail it. And it's really important that someone comes in and nails it because I love this company and I love what it's trying to achieve. And I really want to see that impact being realized. I love that. And how you brought a degree of A, objectivity to it and B, again, that sense of kind of zooming out and looking down on the company and what's best for it and, and the mission and putting that forward, which is not easy to do. So one of the um, really unique things that you brought up before about the now regrow journey has been a couple acquisitions that you've made. Consolidation is something that we've talked a little bit about in our um, blog and on the podcast and something we expect to see more in the industry. But for the founder, it's not always easy to know like when is making an acquisition the right play? How do you integrate the other company in? What's, what are your top 
two lessons from having made uh, a couple acquisitions in, in the regrow journey? It just has to make sense. And I'll define a little bit more what does that mean. So what it means is that either you were going to do this anyway, and the company that you're looking to acquire is bringing something that you don't just wish to have and potentially hypothetically have an application to, like you are dying because you don't have it, or you're already trying to build it. And it's gonna be more efficient to actually join forces to do this together. Sometimes, of course, you have opportunistic things that come across your desk. I have a couple of those at any given point in time, it seems. And it's like, okay, well, maybe this company is not doing so well, but they've developed uh, a bit of a network in the market. They've developed some solutions. Uh, maybe it would be a good fit for regrow. There's really several dimensions. Is Are you acquiring customers? Are those sticky relationships? And are they also bringing you anything in product? Would that product be a good fit? And are you... Um, really trying to patch something forward on your roadmap that is outside of those two categories. It has to make sense because if it feels like, I'm not sure what we're gonna do with it. And to be honest, just think about the people. If you've gone through an acquisition, you know what is there to see and to expect and to forecast and to imagine. Like imagine you've signed this document and all these people are supposed to be coming to you. Do you have a place for them? Do you see them staying? Are they a cultural fit? Are you all on the same journey? If not, it's just probably not going to work. And one of the questions that I ask myself, would I respectfully would have hired them to do this? If the answer is no, don't do it. The phrase that my dad always told me that I've now felt and experienced myself and with our portfolio companies is don't let serendipity get in the way of strategy. And that's exactly what you're saying, right? You, you've got this plan and you need to make sure that it makes sense against the plan while also being opportunistic. Matthew, any comments exactly. on, on acquisitions and, and consolidation? It's so seldom talked about in detail and like the things that you have to think about in the stages because it, it's not a binary thing either, right? There's the period where you're thinking about it. Then there's the period where you're exploring it. And maybe one other comment you could make, I, I certainly personally found this, that as you get closer to the kind of uh, stargate, so to speak, it's very hard to play the right roles because especially for the company being acquired, they're not actually part of your business yet, but they kind of have to act in a way that's very close to that so you can fully explore the solution space of combined strategy they have to feel like the part of your company already even before you signed it at the same time you're kind of still looking at each other deciding to get married or not and that is really true and I think the important part is really feeling like it's a puzzle piece that is objectively missing because if it's a puzzle piece that overlaps with the one you have you have to accept that there will be a very significant struggle between the people you bring in and between the people who you have. Because think about it, everyone wants to be needed and wanted and have a reason to be there. And yes, if you're upfront about, look, we need this technology, but we're going to brain dump and then you're out of here. Like that's not what we ever wanted to do. In the first instance of acquisition, this looked more like what happened <laughs> for a different reason, because culturally it wasn't a great fit and we were better operators of a product-driven software business. But in the second case, like you also have to accept that some people who've been on the journey with that company for a long time may have to make decisions that are irrespective of your vision, of your passion, of your capacity, 
they might have been burnt out already. They might have reached that stargate and said, look, this is the end of the marathon for me. And if there is a kind of a super cool piece of advice, I would say, try to figure out who those people are. And if you have some expectations on particular people coming over to you, really make sure that you have clarity on their plans and you have reasons for them to stay when you're offering them to, to come over, as well as the incentive for the leader of that company who created it, whether that was a CEO, an interim CEO, a different title, for them to come over and perform as a part of your team. Anastasia, we've covered a ton here. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, any last final pieces of wisdom or a piece of advice that was shared with you on your journey so far that you found to be particularly impactful for you as a founder? Learn from other founders. <laughs> Might sound so simple, but figuring out who is relevant for you or like even just approaching a lot of people to figure out who may be relevant because you may find yourself talking to a founder whose business you don't fully understand, but they're in a similar stage with you and they have similar people problems that have, they have solved, for example. So there's such a myriad of opportunities to learn from others, which makes it for a less lonely journey and allows you to really, what humanity is supposed to be good at, building up on the knowledge that we've acquired already. And that's it for this bonus episode of AgTech So What? And the last, actually last, of our series on later stage AgTech startup lessons. Thank you to our guest, Anastasia Volkova, the CEO and founder of Regrow. For links to any of the resources mentioned in this series, you can find them at our website, agtechsowhat.com. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.